The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of God for the people of God. Well, look, by being here, you have proved that you love Jesus more than soccer. So I'm proud of you. Some of you guys are like, wait, there's a soccer thing going on, which shows that you're just Americans. That's all that means. Um, I, by the way, I, someone told me on the way in that it's in overtime, which I didn't know soccer had that. So this, I mean, I don't know what, I thought maybe just the World Cup would end in a draw or a tie because that's how soccer games always end. So I'm glad to know that maybe that won't happen. And uh, I offended all you soccer fans now. So we'll just turn our attention to the word of God. Um, no, I want to remind you, uh, as this weekend comes up, on Christmas Eve, two services, 3.30 p.m. and 5 p.m., and then on Sunday next week, one service at 10 a.m. Uh, here. And so whatever your Christmas weekend plans are, I uh, hope you'll come and worship Jesus with us and uh, bring your family and friends along. One of the reasons I love this season of the year is because it focuses our attention on the incarnation, the beautiful mystery that God became human. In the birth of Jesus Christ, God has come to us. But here's a question I often have as I think about that. What does it mean to be human? You might think that's a simple question. I assure you, the question is not as simple as you think. In fact, I brought up here into the pulpit with me this morning um, a book that the prominent sociologist Christian Smith wrote about 10 years ago, the title is, What is a Person? Now, Christian Smith is one of the most notable sociologists working today. He teaches at Notre Dame. He's written a 500-page book just to try to tackle the question, what is a person? This is a live question in the fields of sociology and anthropology and psychology, and for good reason, because we live in a tradition flowing out of the Enlightenment that has taught us for centuries now that to be a person means to be a sovereign self-determining individual. That personhood means, as Alan Noble summarizes it, you belong to yourself. You are bound to no one. You are responsible to no one. It's up to you to define your own identity and your own values and your own sense of meaning and purpose in life. You get to decide who you will be. There are no givens. And because we've been shaped by that view of personhood, we tend to view the church through that lens as well. A church, we assume, is a gathering of sovereign individual actors. So if you individually choose to belong to a church, then great. But after all, that's an individual choice that you make. We have no deeper bond and obligation to one another. The church is just a bunch of individuals freely associating with each other. Well, this morning, God wants to change the way we think about what it means to be a person and what it means to be the church. 
We come this morning to the conclusion of the letter that James wrote to the churches of the first century, and thus we come to the end of this sermon series that we've been in since about the month of August. And I want you to notice how unusual this conclusion is. Perhaps you've read some of the Bible, and especially in the New Testament epistles, when you come to the conclusion, there's two things you generally expect. First of all, some conclusions are like greetings to people or from people, right? So for example, in 2 Timothy, the letter ends this way, Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Just a set of greetings from some people that would have been known. The other thing you come to expect as you read the letters of the New Testament is is a benediction of sorts. Some letters end with something like this in Ephesians. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So when you're reading letters in the New Testament, you commonly expect, oh, there's going to be some greetings or there's going to be a benediction. James, by contrast, ends with this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He doesn't say greetings from this person or that person. He doesn't say grace and peace be with you. Instead, he talks about wandering and sin and death and saving people's souls. Seems kind of weighty and heavy and significant, doesn't it? Well, you may remember back in Genesis the story of Cain and Abel, one of the first stories in the Bible. And you may remember in that story, God comes to Cain and he asks Cain, where's your brother? And Cain responds with that famous question, am I my brother's keeper? James is saying to you, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper because we belong to Jesus Christ We, in fact, belong to one another, and we have responsibilities to and for one another. James ends his letter by reminding Christians of the responsibility we have for one another. Or to say it another way, he's teaching us what it means to be the church. That's what he's doing as he ends this letter. He's reminding us what it means to be the church. So I I want you to allow this conclusion of this letter to change how you relate to the church. If you've been around here long at all, you've probably had me or one of the other pastors or leaders or staff members nudge you toward a gospel community and maybe even toward church membership. And sometimes when we talk about those things, we talk about sort of how to actually get structurally connected to this church through gospel communities, through church membership. Sometimes we talk about those things, people will say things like, well, look, those are like, modern ways of doing things. When I read the Bible, I don't see the words gospel community or church membership. So modern people made those things up. Okay, let me tell you another word that's not in the Bible. Trinity. Yet, if you deny the Trinity, you are denying a core tenet of the Christian faith. Here's what is in the Bible. The teaching that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet there's only one God. You put all those truths together, and you have the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity may not be in the Bible, but the doctrine is. Well, in the same way, we can't actually do what James tells us to do in this passage unless we are meaningfully committed to a local congregation 
to some local church, some expression of the body of Christ. The words gospel community or church membership may not be in the text, but those are simply means by which churches do the things this text instructs us to do. James wants us to see and understand what the church is. And so he gives us four things here about the church. The church is a family. The church is a community of truth. The church is a community of sinners. And the church is a community of mutual responsibility. That's what we're going to see as we explore this conclusion. And so those are essentially the four points of the sermon this morning. The church is a family, a community of truth, a community of sinners, and a community of mutual responsibility. So let's dive in together and seek to understand more fully what is it that we're doing here? What is the thing we're a part of? First of all, the church is a family. Look at the first two words of the text in James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers. So just stop there. We're just going to have a whole sermon point on two words. That's how we pastors like to do things. Oh, stop reading. Sermon point, right? Uh, my brothers, this word is a familial term. It means some of your uh, Bibles may have translated it brothers and sisters. The point is this is not a gendered word. It is a familial word. It's a word that refers to the relationships we have within the body of Christ. Now, we live in a day and age that is kind of flinchy about gender-inclusive language. I just want you to realize it's okay that cultures thousands of years ago weren't like that. And when they say, my brothers, they're including all of us, right? This is a standard way of talking in most cultures in the world. And I want you to let these words sink in. My brothers. James is writing to churches. And he's addressing them not as an apostle to some underlings or as a more senior Christian to some more junior Christians. He's addressing them as my brothers, my sisters. Everyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ is a brother, a sister in the same family. As I address you this morning, I can call you all my brothers, my sisters. Hey fam, if we want to get a little more colloquial about it, right? The church is family. And this is true because the heart of the gospel is adoption. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4, this great summary of what God has done for us in Christ. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Okay, there's the incarnation. Born of woman, there's Christmas morning. Born under the law, there's the entire Old Testament to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The reason God sent forth his son at Christmas is to secure our adoption into God's family. So the church is first and foremost a family. And I just want to think with you about how does that relate or how does that change the way we relate to one another within the church? If the church is family, how does that make our relationships different? Well, think about this. A family belongs to one another, right? You choose your friends. You don't choose your family. You just get your family. They are given to you. And that's what happens when you become a Christian as well. You don't choose your spiritual family. They are given to you. You belong to them and they belong to you. And what that creates is a mutual bond and a set of mutual obligations, right? I mean, one of the 
funny ways that we've learned to think about personhood is that all of our bonds and obligations are freely chosen, right? You can't demand anything of me or I'm not connected to anyone unless I choose to be connected to you, unless I volitionally have chosen to enter into some relationship. But actually the nature of our lives is such that you have the name you have because someone else chose it for you, right? You didn't choose your family. You were born into a family and you inherited a set of bonds and obligations that were pre-existing before you got here and that continue now that you're here simply because you belong to some family. Now, all of our family structures and systems are different. Some of you are thankful you belong to the family. You do. Some of you, maybe you're not so thankful that you belong to the family that you do, but it doesn't change the fact that the nature of your presence in the world is that you belong to some set of people. And that same thing is true for us as Christians. We belong to one another, not because we choose to, not because we really like each other, not because we all have the same interests and we do the same stuff and we all sort of interact in the world in the same way, but just because we're given to one another. There's a bond and an obligation that Christians have to each other that's deeper than just friendship. A few years ago, I was invited to come to South Africa and to serve some churches there. So I took my son, Lewis with me, and we took the longest flight available in the world to uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. And I spent about 10 days there um, serving alongside some other Christians and serving in some churches. And um, it was fascinating because the, the majority culture language in South Africa is a language called Afrikaans, which is a variant of Dutch. And so most of the people who are there speak Afrikaans and also English and also one of the tribal languages of South Africa. So most of them are at least trilingual. And so you feel like a real American when you're like, I speak a language, plus I learned some high school Spanish, I can order a taco and that's about it, right? Like most of us don't just flow in and out of various languages. Well, here's how church worked in South Africa because everybody is multilingual. They would literally start the service in Afrikaans. They would sing songs in Afrikaans. They would pray in Afrikaans. Then the person up here would just be like, and now I'd like to introduce Pastor Bob. And they would just switch to English and they'd say, he's going to preach in English. And then I could just preach in English and everybody was just like, great, this is cool too. And I realized it was fascinating to sit there and realize these people are singing in a language I don't understand. They're praying in a language I don't understand. They relate to one another in a language I don't understand. And yet here's what's true. Like they're my people. Like we're family. There's a deep bond that connects us because these are Christians worshiping Jesus and I'm a Christian worshiping Jesus. And here we are in a church service on the other side of the world with a different language, but there's a bond that unites us and that holds us together because we're members of the same family. We all belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what this does when we start to think about it is it relativizes one of our common complaints that we have about church as Americans and I have heard, by the way, I've heard this in every church I've ever been in, and I've heard it from every different kind of person in those churches. So just so you know, it's not like one of you or one of us that says this, it's all of us that tend to say this. The complaint is, well, there aren't enough people like me here. Like, it doesn't matter what church you're in or what demographic you fall in, the thing you feel is like, well, I mean, this church is a bunch of people that aren't really like me. I've heard high school students say that. There aren't enough high school students here. There aren't enough college students here. There aren't enough young single people here. There aren't enough older single people here. There aren't enough young married couples here. There aren't enough young married couples without kids here. There aren't enough people with young kids here. There aren't enough people with high school kids here. There aren't enough people with empty nesters here. There aren't enough retired people here. Just pick a demographic, right? And we're used to saying, well, I mean, there just aren't enough people like me here. Because we look around and what we see is difference. And we're just, we're not 
we, we don't know everybody in the room. And so we just, you know, well, these people aren't like me. Well, the point of what James is saying is, yeah, because we're family. This isn't a group of friends where we all just decided that we all are interested in the same things and want to run through life together. How we got here is we got pulled into the family of God. And guess what? That's what every local church is, just a little subset of God's family. So it's okay. It's okay that there aren't enough people like you here. There probably never will be. That's not the bond that holds us together. The bond that holds us together is greater than demographic and it's greater than friendship and it's greater than I like all these people and they all like me and they understand me. The bond that holds us together is we're family. We're united together in the Lord Jesus Christ. So James wants you to hear, first of all, hey, the church is family, my brothers, he says. Second, the church is a community of truth. Look again at the text, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know, etc. So here's an important question. What's the center of a church? Right? Every church has something at the center. Have you ever thought about this? For some churches, it seems like the center is some charismatic leader figure. Right? That's the center of gravity around which the church revolves. For other churches, the center is the social network, the relationships. And, and you go to this church primarily to like network and be connected to people and make the right connections, right? For other churches, the center can even be an aspect of the church's ministry. So it's the choir, it's the youth group, it's the, the outreach to the neighborhood. But listen, biblically, none of those things should be the center of a church. What should be the center of any church is truth. Look at the text. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Just think about how refreshing this is to think about. What the text is saying is that truth is something solid and objective and real. It's something you can wander away from and be brought back to. It's not the truth that moves. You move and then you are brought back to it, right? This is crucial because we live in a world that, generally speaking, does not believe anymore in the objectivity of truth. Does not believe that truth is something real and solid and substantial. That's why people say things like, live your truth. I'm not sure what that means, but that's something other than an object of understanding of truth, right? That's why we're in this sort of morass of subjectivity that we find ourselves in where everything's up for grabs and nothing's really solid and stable and predictable because we bought in the idea that truth is subjective, not objective. It's something you create, not something that exists independent of you. But here's the funny thing. You can't actually live that way. Like, Actually, every one of us believes in the objectivity of truth, even if we philosophically try to pretend that we don't. Because you can't share a world with other people unless we agree that something is objective outside of us. Like when you get in your car to leave here, you are going to be operating from the assumption that truth is objective. Because you are going to drive home assuming that everybody else around you affirms the same traffic laws and is going to stop at the same lights and go the same direction on the road. And if that wasn't true, there's no way we could actually commute anywhere, right? And so you assume there's some objective standard beyond us that all of us conform our driving patterns to. And if that's true in something as culturally relative as driving patterns, 
How much more is it true in the more important and significant aspects of our life and our being? Truth is not subjective. Truth is objective. And the church is a community of truth. It's a community that gathers around the truth, that loves the truth, that believes in the truth, that preaches the truth, that believes that truth is found in God's word and truth is also found in God's world. And wherever truth is, we are a community of people that embrace it and love it and follow it. You will often hear me say here, the only thing that really matters is whether the gospel is true. If it's not true, you're wasting your time here and you shouldn't come back. If we're just here sort of like hoping that we feel better tomorrow about life, that's not a very significant reason to be together. The only reason we're here is because we believe Jesus Christ actually did die on the cross and get up out of the grave and that changes things. And if that's true, then that matters. And if it's not true, then what are we doing? So to really hear what James is saying here, we have to die to the rationalism that's so ingrained in us. Now, we tend to think of truth as something intellectual, something cognitive, something we think about or ascribe to. But notice the language James uses. If anyone among you wanders from the truth. In other words, truth is a way. Truth is a path. Truth is something we walk in. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Psalm 86 Verse 11, truth is not merely something to be believed. It is a way to walk in. And it is something we can wander away from and be brought back to. The church is a community of truth. And listen, this should be deeply refreshing to you. And here's why. Because it means that church is not oriented around, it's not centered around your feelings or your circumstances, which are both things that change all the time, right? You have seasons of life where you feel great, Seasons of life where you don't, seasons of life where your circumstances are real great, and seasons of life when they're not. And listen, here's the good news. No matter how you feel, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, the truth is still true. The gospel is still good news. No matter whether it's been a great week or a terrible week, Jesus Christ is still risen from the dead, and there's still a solid center of truth for us to gather around, and that gives us an anchor in the midst of life. So this is really good news that the church is a community of truth because it means just Church provides a stable anchor. The word of God, the truth of God provides a stable anchor that we orient our lives around and that can actually carry us through moments of life where we feel groundless and aimless. The church is a community of truth. And James is clear. You can wander away from the truth. You need to come back to the truth, but the truth doesn't move. It's stable and solid and sure. Third, notice he says, the church is a community of sinners. Look again at the text. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, sin language is used twice here. Here's the question. What kind of sinner is in view here? Who is this person we're talking about? Well, it is someone among you who has wandered from the truth. In other words, a Christian sinner. That's the kind of sinner we're talking about. Every Christian is at the same time a saint and a sinner. Every Christian is at the same time justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but also not yet perfect, not yet complete, not yet the person that they are becoming. 
Theologically, we're talking about the difference here between the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. Justification is you are, the gavel has fallen in heaven and you are declared not guilty by virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ and your faith in Christ. Sanctification is the reality that you are still in process and on a journey and in the midst of becoming the person that God will make you to be. Every Christian is at the same time saint and sinner. And so the church is a community of sinners. And James is pointing this out, not so that we can excuse our sin, rationalize our sin, or justify our sin, but rather so we can have realistic expectations of one another. Paul Tripp has a great little book on marriage. Here's the title. What did you expect? That's the title of his book on marriage. And the simple point he's making in the book is this. We go into marriage with these weirdly unrealistic expectations. That though I know in my mind that I'm marrying another human being and that they must be a sinner like I am, actually I don't expect that to really be the case. And so I go on with these unrealistic expectations. What he says about marriage is just true about every other relationship in our lives as well, right? Like we just have unrealistic expectations. We're not convinced that people around us are sinners and that therefore they're going to sin against us. We have super idealistic expectations of one another. And this, listen, this is part of what kills churches and kills your ability to meaningfully engage in community. When your expectations are, these people are never going to fail me, they're always going to be there for me. They're never going to show their flaws and faults and failures. And if they do, it's certainly not going to be against me. And then that happens, right? Throw in the towel. But you know what really changed your involvement in the church? It would change your involvement in the church if you expected sinners to sin. And actually, if you didn't just expect people to sin, but if you also expected people to be real humans, like, not everything we do is sin, right? Sometimes we just forget stuff. We fail one another. I mean, have you ever forgotten to return a text message or a phone call? That happens, right? When that happens to me, I'm like, oh, man, I forgot. I should, I should just, sorry, I forgot. And I'd like text people a week later and be like, hey, sorry, I forgot to text you back, right? I just assume I just forgot. But then when someone does that to me, you know where your mind goes. Well, I mean, I guess that's what my friendship means to them. Guess I'm not important enough for them to text back, right? I get, maybe there's a rift in our life. My mind starts going all kinds of places, assuming there's some motive or some reason why that person didn't text me back. Most of the time, you know what it is? They're human, like I am. The church, friends, is a community of flawed, frail, fragile people, a community of sinners. So here's what that means. It means you can stop expecting the people around you to be perfect, and you can just bear with one another the way the New Testament commands us to. It also means you should expect the thing that James is talking about in this text to actually happen. Like, I think sometimes we think, man, someone wandering away from the truth is like a huge deal. Nope, it happens. It will happen in your gospel community this next year. Not a big deal. It happens all the time. And you know what's supposed to happen when it does happen? Other Christians are supposed to come along and be like, hey, Let's come back over here to the truth. Like, that's normal. Stop treating that as abnormal and being amazed when it happens and just start expecting it to happen and it will make your existence in the church a lot better and a lot warmer and a lot more gracious. There's that line in the hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
And I think we all like that line because I think we realize it, it expresses something that we feel as true. Like you know your heart and you know that you're prone to wander. And when you sing that, I think it resonates existentially. Like, yeah, that, I feel that sometimes, you know? I feel that proneness to wander. So what if you expected that was true of other people as well? Like, what if you saying that not just expecting that it's true of yourself, but realizing we're in a room full of other people that that's also true for? What if you furthermore expected that the local church is the means by which God wants to keep us faithful to the truth? Like this is the tool he's going to use to keep us faithful to the truth. By the way, I like when this happens. I have to tell you this. This happens frequently where I, uh, there's a song that comes to mind and I'm like, oh, I need to mention that in the sermon. There's a line in that song that's really helpful. And I mention the line and then I'm like, oh, I wonder if we're singing that song this week. And then we are. I know you guys all think like, oh, that's planned. That's not planned. The Holy Spirit just does that. That's why I like Olivia and the work that she does to plan our worship because just like the Holy Spirit lines stuff like that up. So here we are. I'm mentioning that song and we just sang it. And so you're like, oh yeah, we just sang that line. I love when that happens. The church is a family, a community of truth, a community of sinners. And finally, the church is a community of mutual responsibility. I want you to notice the words, anyone and someone. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death, save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. So notice who's doing the bringing back here. It's not a church leader. It's not a pastor. It's not some official Christian. It's anyone. It's literally whoever. And friends, listen, this is the secret sauce. This is what makes the church come alive and be healthy and vibrant. This is actually what the Reformation was all about. The priesthood of all believers. The Catholic Church of the Middle Ages was very clerical. It had priests and bishops and archbishops and monks and nuns, and those were the people who had real spiritual responsibility. And so you went to church to confess your sins to a priest, to be absolved by a priest, to receive communion from a priest, to be taught by a priest. There were official people who did the real things, and then there were the rest of us. But see, the Protestant reformers read verses like James 5, 19 and 20, and they realized, hey, there's no, there's no priest in these verses. Like the Bible envisions ordinary Christians taking responsibility for one another. This verse says, anyone can wander from the truth and God can use anyone to bring that person back. It doesn't have to be a priest or a pastor or a church leader. The church is a community of mutual responsibility, a community where we are taking responsibility for one another. And listen, when you get this, it changes how you think about the church. When you begin to take responsibility for the people around you, you realize, hey, God has made me responsible for these other people around me. When you start thinking like that, there's no way you can be a consumer anymore, right? Like it can't just be about what's in it for you and what you get out of it because you realize you're responsible for other people around you. And so it's also about them and what they get out of it. And God wants to use you in that process. So it changes how you engage with the church in the first place. The church is a community of mutual responsibility where God invites us to take responsibility for one another. Now, how would I know if I were 
wandering from the truth. How would you know if I were wandering from the truth? <laughs> I wrote that question. I was like, well, because probably I'd preach something heretical. And you'd be like, that doesn't sound right. Okay, so don't use me as the example. But like, how would you know if the person next to you were wandering from the truth? Well, we'd have to be in one another's lives in a meaningful way, right? Like we'd have to actually have a context where we, we really knew one another in a meaningful way and what was going on in real life and hence the need for gospel communities and for church membership. The need for relational context in which we can really be known and practice meaningful accountability. I mean, if you think about what the early church was like, right? They met in the temple courts and from house to house. There was a big gathering like this where they're gathering to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and hear his word. There were smaller communities where they're gathering just to sort of be together life on life. The same is what we need to practice. We need to be in a room like this, hearing the word of God and singing together and encouraging one another. We also need to be known. So ask this question, who, who are you responsible for? Like if it's true that the church is a community of mutual responsibility, who are you responsible for? Are you responsible for every other Christian you've ever known? Are you responsible for anyone who's ever come in this room? Who are you responsible for? Well, obviously, we do have a responsibility to every other human being to love our neighbor as ourselves, as Jesus commanded us. But James is talking about something more particular than that. He writes, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So in James's mind, there's a body of people who you are among and who have made a shared commitment to the truth. And really, that's what church membership is. It's a it's making a commitment to the truth and a commitment to one another. When you become a member of a local church, whatever that process is, you're saying, I'm committed to God and to his truth, and I'm committing to these people who are also here committing to one another. And if you're the skeptic who would say, well, listen, every Christian is a member of God's people, I would just say yes and amen. But that's not what James is talking about here. Notice he says, Anyone among you. He's writing to specific Christians in specific churches. And he doesn't say any Christian anywhere. He doesn't say the Christians in the next town over from you. He says anyone among you, meaning there's a defined local particular body of people to whom you belong and for whom you're taking responsibility. And so I'll just say what we say frequently here. If you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus Christ and to his people, you should also belong to some local congregation, okay? Be a member of some local church. It doesn't have to be this one. Just pick one and go through the process of committing in a meaningful way to that body of people because that's what the Bible assumes. It assumes that if we belong to Christ, we're also in a community that knows us and where we are known, where we can have this kind of fellowship and accountability and responsibility for one another. The church is a family, it's a community of truth, it's a community of sinners, and it's a community of mutual responsibility. That's what James shows us here in this conclusion. Now, I want to I close by drawing your attention to the glory of what James is saying here. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering 
will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That ought to bug you a little bit. Because who is it that saves your soul from death? Jesus. Who is it that covers your sins? It's Jesus and his death on the cross. And yet this text is saying that when you bring someone back from their wandering, you are saving their soul and covering a multitude of sins. How is that possible? Here's what the text is showing you, friends. God doesn't do his work in the abstract. He does it concretely. He does it through ordinary Christians in ordinary local churches. I mean, just think about how you first heard the gospel. Think about how the message of Jesus Christ came to you. Is it not true that you either heard it from a person or from a church or some Christian ministry? How will they hear without a preacher, Paul asked in Romans 10. The way you're going to hear the word is God's going to send a preacher to preach it to you. There's no such thing as an abstract encounter with the gospel. The gospel comes to you through people. And likewise, this text is saying, look, it's Jesus saving your soul from death. It's Jesus covering a multitude of sins. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who does the work. But he does that through his people. If someone is wandering from the truth and you bring them back, you participate in the work Jesus Christ is doing in that person's soul. And you get the joy of being a part of that. And likewise, if it's you that's wandering away, and someone brings you back to the truth, then they get that joy. And you get to experience God's work in your life through them. When you come to the communion table and some elder or deacon places bread in your hands, that's the Lord Jesus Christ offering you his body. He's just doing it through that person. Last week, when I and the other elders had the privilege of praying with many of you and anointing you with oil. In that moment, that's Christ himself coming to you in his grace. He's just doing it through his people. The way we experience God's grace toward us is through one another. And in that sense, James's conclusion really is a kind of benediction. He doesn't say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What he does say is, when you and I take responsibility for one another, we participate with the Lord Jesus Christ in the holy and meaningful work of saving souls from death and covering over sin. And isn't that the kind of glorious thing you want to be involved in? Like, isn't that why you're here? You're not here just because you want a social group or because you want to hang out with some nice people or because you didn't want to watch the World Cup finals. You're here because you want to be involved in something deep and powerful. You want to be caught up in work that God is doing that's beyond us and high and holy, but that you get used in and you get the joy of being a part of. That's what this text is saying is true of us, friends. Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, was a cynical question. It was a wicked question. It was a, an abandonment of the responsibility God had given him to his brother. But thankfully, you and I have a better brother. The firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has gone before us, who has died for our sin, 
who has caused us to be adopted into God's family and who now calls us his brothers and sisters and who invites us into this amazing and holy work that he is doing through his people. That's what we're caught up in. And that's what James wants you to remember as he ends this book and as we close the chapter on this sermon series. He wants you to remember, hey, you're a part of something profound and deep and meaningful. You're a part of God doing the deepest and most important work in the souls of human beings. And he does it through you. Anyone who's willing to put an arm around a brother and sister and say, hey, let's walk back to the truth. So let's pray that we would be those kind of people together. Will you join me? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us back to the truth. Thanks for your grace to save us, to change us, to forgive us, and to sanctify us. Would you forgive us for our individualism, the ways we tend to view ourselves as isolated, solitary, atomistic human beings? Remind us this morning of your great purposes for your people. You know, how you want to use us in one another's lives. So God, would you move us more fully into the heart of belonging? Thanks that we belong to you, and because of that, we belong to one another. Give us grace now to live out that belonging in real and meaningful ways through our community together, through our worship together, through our prayer for one another, and through living life alongside one another in this beautiful, messy reality called the local church that you gave your life for. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.